Joshua chapter 10 this evening, our journey through the scriptures. We remember last time as we concluded chapter 9 that Joshua and the leaders of the children of Israel were deceived by the Gibeonites and as a part of that deception they entered into a covenant with a group of people that they shouldn't have entered into a covenant with and it's going to create some complications for them as we'll see tonight as all ungodly alliances do in our lives. And um, so uh, here they're, they're in the situation where they've made that covenant with them. And uh, apparently as a part of this covenant, they had established some kind of a mutual defense pact of some kind. Uh, because uh, as the Gibeonites are attacked in this chapter, they immediately call upon the children of Israel to come to their defense. And uh, Joshua readily does it under the direction of the Lord. So it's, it's quite a deep covenant that they've entered into with the Gibeonites. And, and that kind of sets the stage for what happens in chapter 10. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, first mention of Jerusalem... Uh, in the Bible, it will not really come under Jewish control and become the capital of Israel uh, until the time of Israel's second king, the most famous king of Israel of all, King David. So right now it is in the hands of others and it would be until that time. And uh, so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem at that time, when he heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done already to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants further of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, the effect that this had on the king and also upon the population of his little kingdom was that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were mighty. So the Gibeonites weren't a bunch of uh, sissies who were just looking to get out of a battle. They were, uh, it's a very, very wealthy uh, city and very wealthy kind of city-state that the Gibeonites were. Their men were uh, tremendous uh, warriors. But they could see the handwriting on the wall. There was no future in resisting God or resisting God's people. And so that's why they entered into the covenant. But if a, uh, a city-state as great as the Gibeonites saw that the only solution for their survival was uh, to uh, enter into this kind of a covenant, a peace covenant with the children of Israel, then this king, Adonai Zedek, recognized that this had the potential of sending ripples all the way through uh, Canaan, and there would be perhaps the surrender of one city-state after another to the children of Israel, and this they wanted to avoid. And so as a result of all of this, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Ho, uh, Hoham, king of Hebron, uh, Piram, king of Jarmuth, uh, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. And so he is going to put together kind of a five-king uh, coalition to try and fight the children of Israel. They, they're getting the idea right now that they can't be defeated one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And, and so he's going to put this coalition together in order to fight in the hopes of being able to defeat the children of Israel. And so he gives them the invitation, come up to me and help me that we may attack 
Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. And so the idea apparently is that in attacking Gibeon, that they recognize that the children of Israel would, of necessity, by virtue of the, of the covenant, have to come to Gibeon's, uh, the Gibeonites' defense, and then they could uh, not only make an example of the Gibeonites by defeating them, and showing what happens if you cross your you know, Canaanite brethren, but then also have a chance to defeat the children of Israel. And so, therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, uh, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together, went up, they and all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon and made war against it. So the attack was uh, on, and they now lay siege uh, to the Gibeonites. Now, in, in doing this, they really are wanting to draw the children of Israel into battle on their terms. But God is very, very gracious to the children of Israel. They realize they've made a mistake in uh, making a covenant with the Gibeonites, but they've acknowledged that, they've repented of that, they're willing to bear the consequences of, of the bad decision that they've made there. And they can't really do anything more about that in the same way that you and I, I, I can't change my yesterday, I can't change my last week, I can't change a day in my life 20 years ago. All I can do is learn what I need to learn from it, uh, make sure that I'm right with God right now, and then it allows the Lord to take, and when I, rec- when I don't look in, is it, to try and use God's grace in my life as an opportunity to become casual about sin or He's always going to forgive me, I can just do whatever I want and that's the way that He is. Using grace as an excuse to sin, which Paul, you know, God condemns in the New Testament all the way through the Bible but through the Apostle Paul. And uh, so we aren't to do that. But when we do learn our lessons related to something and say, all right, Lord, I, I got that. I see the consequences that are in front of me. I take responsibility for them. Then the Lord is able to step up and extend grace to our situation, realizing as a heavenly father that we won't confuse it as him being lax related to sin, but recognizing that we really do need his grace at this moment in time. The grace that God extends to the children of Israel in this situation is that in uh, doing with what these five kings do is they come out of walled cities and they come out into the open in order to lay siege to the Gibeonites and so God is able now to having them in the open to be able to empower the children of Israel to overwhelm them out in the open which is much easier than trying to take walled cities one at a time and so the Lord is going to work it uh, you know for good for the children of Israel going to work it against their enemies uh, in, in all of this and this defeat of these five kings is going to break the back of the Amorite and Canaanite uh, opposition to the children of Israel in, uh, in the southern uh, conquest of, of the promised land and so uh, it's, it's beautiful how much grace God has toward his people Old Testament and New Testament. He's able to work all things together for good with our repentance and confession of sin and, and learning from, from our past. And the men of Gibeon, they're now being laid siege to, verse 6, so they sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, and he, he didn't want this phone call. 
but he's going to get it, and God's going to be good in it. He said, do not forsake your servants. Come to us quickly, save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. And so he puts out a, a plea to the children of Israel to come uh, to their defense. And so uh, they're, they're facing uh, you know, annihilation and destruction, and so they send the word out. And again, I want to make the point here, because it's an important one, in the book of Joshua. Here again, we see one of the problems with ungodly alliances in our life or ungodly relationships that we make with people or groups of people in our lives uh, relationships that have no business being in our lives as Christians and there's a lot of those relationships it's a kind of thing that we um, uh, increasingly people just kind of uh, you know I don't know if it's whether people just kind of start to put degrees to sins like the Roman Catholics have done or something you've got the mortal and the venal or whatever they are and this kind of thing but we can do the same thing in our own minds and uh, we obey the big commands of God but we disregard the, what we deem to be the smaller commands not realizing they're going to any disobedience to God's commands is going to put us in a lot of trouble but this idea of just not heeding the Lord on who we make our friends and our peers in life, our business partners in life, our husbands, our wives, our influencers in life. And the Lord is very strict related to this. And uh, when we disregard His standard for who we allow to be an influencer in our life or who we make ourselves yoked to, all it ever does, without exception, it just draws us into unnecessary conflict and trials and warfare and drama and things that God never had intended for us. There's enough warfare, there's enough drama and enough difficulty about the Christian life without adding it to myself by disobeying Him with godly alliances. In the New Testament, Paul wrote in this vein, so you have an idea that it doesn't just apply in the Old Testament, Second Corinthians chapter 6. He said, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Now, for some people to stand, to, to heed that, Christians to heed that in their lives, it can mean the loss of significant relationships and, and uh uh, in, in terms of giving them a pace, place of influence. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't be engaged in uh, the lives of family members or friends or neighbors or these kinds of things in a, in a way where we are influencing them for good and we're not entering into to being unequally yoked with them. That, that kind of thing is okay. But we're talking about a relationship is becoming serious. It's, it's beginning to influence us in ways that are unhealthy. The Lord knows that to lay those aside, it can mean a sacrifice on our part, at least on a, on a fleshly level. And so the Lord gives the promise here, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says, I'll come in into that uh, empty spot in your life and I will 
I will fill that so fully that you won't uh, uh, grieve exceedingly over the loss of that. Paul wrote to Timothy, and it's great uh, for younger people. Timothy was a younger man compared to Paul. But in, in 2 Timothy 2.22, he said, Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call out uh, on the Lord, call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And so those are the people that you want to get around that provoke us to greatness. I love what Ray, uh, Leonard Ravenhill said in the book on revivals, as I read it so many years ago. He says, where is the prophet who will stir the prophets? That's what we want. We want to be around people that are going to stir us to greatness spiritually. I remember when I used to play a lot of basketball. Now everything just hurts a lot. But... Um, I used to play a lot in high school and then in junior college, and um, boy, we'd go from gym to gym to gym, and it, it cost a lot of money. We didn't have much money to get the car from one place to the other to the other, and, and all. I mean, gas was a 25 cents a gallon back then, and I forget what minimum wage was, but it was big money to move around. But we would move from gym to gym to gym until we found where the college players were playing. We wanted, to, we wanted to be up against the best that were in the city in order that they would provoke us to, if not greatness, at least being better than we were in terms of basketball. And that's just something as silly as basketball, but it has spiritual applications uh, too. And so this alliance, this uh, ungodly alliance here, it, it gets them into problems that they wouldn't otherwise have uh, in their life. Now, to Joshua's credit, he is faithful to the covenant, verse 7. And so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, so we can assume that he prayed. Again, he's learning as a leader. I, I wish we could all do our ministries and have it all down from day one, but we learn, and we learn an awful lot of things from our mistakes. I wish I learned everything that I needed to learn in the Christian life from your mistakes or somebody else's mistakes or somebody else's testimony. But I'm so dumb I've got to learn half the things I learn on my own. So uh, they, the, the, you see the, the prayer and wanting a word from the Lord here related to what to do. And the Lord said to Joshua, Don't fear them. I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now this is a confederation of five kings. And what, what does God do? God tells him that he's going to have victory in the battle before the battle. How good is that? That's pretty good. Isn't that be great? Now, you're going into battle. Here it's pages on a, words on a page here, and we know that it's historically true and the different things. But, I mean, the temperature's pretty nice in the room tonight, isn't it? The chairs are comfortable. I'm doing okay. I'm feeling pretty good about it. So I'm not facing a confederation of, of five armies, a confederation of, of five kings. It's another thing to be heading out into the battlefield tomorrow to fight these people. And, uh, and, and war is a messy thing. It always has been. And then for them, think about how much they would appreciate it, for you to have a word from the Lord who determines victory in battle ahead of time that you're going to defeat them and utterly defeat them next day, Pretty valuable stuff. That's great encouragement. Now the interesting thing is in the New Testament, the Bible speaks to us as Christians in the spiritual warfare that we're involved in and, the God, and God declares concerning us that we are more than conquerors because of Christ. Well, a conqueror 
is someone who leaves the battlefield victorious after the battle. One who is more than a conqueror is the person who knows that they're going to be victorious before they go into the battle. And so as sure as their victory was going to be in terms of the physical here, we have the same promises related to us spiritually in any spiritual warfare that we're entering into. It's tremendous. It's the assurance that we're going to be successful in any spiritual warfare that we enter into. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And so Joshua isn't a man to waste time. And uh, so the Lord gives him the promise of victory. And uh, so he takes his army. They are involved in an all-night march in order to catch the armies of these five kings, catch them by surprise. So an all-night march of about 25 miles. Uh, the terrain is very rough. And, there's, and it is an ascension of about 4,000 feet. And so these guys are huffing and puffing all night long to get there, and they've got quite a day ahead of them. And so the, uh, uh, the promise of victory that God gives to us, no excuse for being slothful. God does His part in any battle, but we have a part in the battle too. I don't think anybody's going to figure out this side of heaven. Once we're in heaven, who cares? But this great argument that goes on concerning the sovereignty or the almightiness of God and then man's free moral agency or freedom to choose. And so the argument will go on and on and on until the Lord comes back. But here we see in the, the balance that we really see all the way through Scripture is that God is absolutely sovereign, but in most situations He will do in that situation what only He can do and then He will command us to do what He knows that we can do so then, and give us the ability to do it so we will develop necessary character in our lives that only comes through conflict and victory and faith and these kinds of things. And so we see this beautiful balance of, of that uh, here in this Old Testament uh, passage. So they really get there, and as they arrive there, so the Lord routed them before Israel, this confederation of, of armies, killed them of the great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. So the Lord, uh, they caught them by surprise, came in there and uh, the enemy panicked and, uh, and you notice that it says there in verse 10, so the Lord routed them. And say Joshua did it to the children of Israel. He used them, but it was the Lord that did it. There's a lot of people that have a problem with uh, military imagery being ascribed to God. And some sections of, of professing Christianity, they've taken all of that kind of imagery out of the hymn books, anything that talks about God as one who fights with the head of a great army and all of those kinds of things. And I guess they want a kind of a kindler and gentler God. I don't know what, uh, and God is a kind God and he's a gentler God, a gentle God, but he's also a warrior. And you know what? That doesn't trouble me one bit. I think there's pockets in history within a nation, maybe in the United States, or maybe from like the end of World War II all the way through to the early 70s. I mean, the economy, just like this. I mean, people making money like crazy. The country's just 
prospering in incredible kind of ways. And sometimes we can get full of ourselves in these little 20 and 30 year bubbles in human history and start to think that we uh, can redefine what God is. Here we've got a great military in the United States and these kinds of things. I'll tell you, as I watch the world unravel around me today, and I'm watching the world unravel, and trust me, it is, it is not a financial problem that our country has. It is a moral and a spiritual problem that our country has. The financial side is just a symptom of much more serious problems. And the alarming thing is that this country is not turning in mass or even in a small measure to God or back to God. The churches are not filling like they did after 9-11 and quickly emptied out, by the way, as soon as we move on to the next crisis. So there are problems in this world for anyone that can stomach the news these days. And I am glad for the fact that God is able, the God of the Bible is able to rise up and defend his people and to rise up and defeat wickedness as he sees is, is just right for him as he moves human history toward its uh, God-appointed end. And so these things, they, they comfort me. Now notice in uh, verse 11, it happened as these enemies fled before Israel that they were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great hailstones from heaven on them as far as uh, Azekah and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. And so the Lord joins the battle in the form of uh, large hailstones raining down upon uh, the enemy, and, uh, and, and he joins the battle with deadly results. Now, some people, uh, as they read the Bible, they can't handle a miracle. Listen, if I came to you and I told you, listen, I called hailstones down from heaven, I don't mind you doubting that. But we're talking about God, creator of the heavens and the earth. He can do anything that he wants. He's able to do it. So they look and say, well, it wasn't really a miracle of God. It was just, they just had a, a hailstone storm right in the middle of the battle. You got a problem because the hail only hit the bad guys. And it didn't hit any of the good guys. So you, got, you just got to accept the miracle, uh, miraculous related to God. And uh, so God is he's not only introduces himself into the battle, but he's a very, very good aim. He probably <laughs> go just zoom right from single A into the majors, you know, right away, throw one no-hitter, a perfect game after another. And so he comes in and, and uh, knocks it out. And, his, and it's interesting, he's doing a lot of things all at once, because one of the things he's doing here, like he did with the children of Israel, each one of those ten plagues that he brought on Israel in order to redeem, uh, on Egypt, in order to redeem Israel uh, from Egypt, all of those plagues were a judgment against the different gods that Egypt was worshipping. And so when God takes and he judges these people by way of hail, it's a, it is a, 
um, demonstration of his superiority over the gods of the Amorites and the Canaanites. They worshipped a god principally, a god who was known as Baal. And Baal was the storm god. He was the hail god. He was the rain god. He was the weather god. And so what God does here in, in sending this uh, hail is he demonstrates his absolute authority over uh, Baal, who was supposedly in charge of the weather. Baal was obviously powerless to defend those that worshipped him. Now this use of nature and, and the use of hail in particular uh, it, it is going to be used by the Lord once again, the Bible teaches, and, um, and used as a means of, of uh, judgment, and it's going to have the same kind of deadly results as it, as it did here in the Old Testament. In Revelation chapter 16, uh, it declares, and it's the, it, it's the seventh bowl of wrath, and this final bowl really uh, constitutes the, the conclusion, the finishing of, of God's wrath being poured out uh, on, during the great tribulation period. And we're told that great hail came from heaven, fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because that plague was exceedingly Great. Now, when God talks about the fact that the hailstones uh, measured a talent in weight, that's 100 pounds. You try flying a fighter jet through that. Or I don't know how well they built your house, but my house would probably stand through the first 15 seconds or something like that. I don't know where we would hide in it. And uh, so the hailstone, and, and we look at it and say, well, boy, what, what, is, what is God doing there? He's stoning the earth for blasphemy. That was, the, that was the sentence for blasphemy in the Old Testament. And he comes in and he stones the whole world for their blasphemy against him, even during the great tribulation. And, and so the Lord then, uh, then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day, when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, so here they're in the middle of this battle, and here's what's happening with Joshua. They're in the middle of this battle. Everything is going great for the defeat of these enemies, but he is realizing that he has more enemy than he has daylight left. So he needs more daylight to accomplish what it is that God has called him to do. And it's very interesting to note related to this miracle that God is going to do here that this miracle is given to Joshua and the children of Israel because they are endeavoring to do something that God has commanded them to do. And, and so Joshua looks at it and says, this is going great. God has called us to destroy the people of this land and we're running out of daylight and things are going good. And so this is the prayer that he makes publicly. So you talk about faith. I think he already had a word from the Lord on this. And so he publicly prays and he says, Son, stand still. He didn't, he didn't stutter. He said, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of uh, Elijahlon. And, and so this is the, 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 the request that he makes and then the answer of God to the prayer. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped. All the orbits slowed down till the people had revenge upon their enemies. And so the Lord, in, in an answer to the prayer of Joshua, the Lord apparently, nobody really knows how quite, how 
quite how God did the miracle, and, but it appears that he probably slowed down the orbits a little bit in order to extend and give Joshua somewhere between 12 and 24 uh, additional hours in order to, um, in, to, in order to fully destroy uh, the, the enemy. I think one of the great lessons of this particular miracle, and we'll return to the miracle in just a, a little bit, but one of the great lessons to be learned in our Christian life is that as we obey the Lord and what He calls us to do, He will add whatever He has to from the supernatural to make us successful. And so often God calls us to take a step of faith in our service to Him. And we look and what do we got? Five loaves and two fish. Two quarters to rub together. Or we don't have any kind of experience or what, and we look and we want, and we're going to evaluate the whole thing on the basis of our resources. God will add whatever He has to from the supernatural in order to make us successful in what it is that He calls us to do. The Christian life is a supernatural life. And so often God calls us to do things where once they're accomplished and God and people look and realize God has used us, they, they say, see, God must be real. Look what was accomplished through that person. That's an affront to our pride. But that's, that's how it works so often. And so God will, will do that. And God will do whatever is supernaturally necessary for us to possess Every single promise in the New Testament. I remember one time I had a guy come in and, and, uh, and I knew him very, very well. He came in for counseling. We're talking about a million years ago down at 10th and F. And, uh, and he came in and he just said, you know, this thing doesn't, this, this Christianity is not working for me. So he's like, he's, he's having an affair and he's doing all kinds of, he's just fleshing out. Now he's walking with the Lord today, full on, so... He was doing what he wanted to do, but he wanted to blame God at the moment. And so I'm glad he's doing great today. So it, you don't know him, so don't even try and think about It's not on our city council. There's no, nothing here at all. So he comes in and he said, you know, listen, this whole thing, I, I, I'm trusting God in this way, and God's just not coming through on this whole deal. And so I knew him well enough that I could laugh at him a little bit on things. But I, I turned to the second Peter... Uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And this is what I read to him. I'm not trying to be the hero of the story, I, I, though I don't mind that. But, but, it, but it's a passage, and it's an incident that I had with him that is instructive to my heart, too. And so Peter wrote, and he said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then here it is. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge that is an experiential knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, live this life of obedience to God's Word and possess the promises, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So the Bible teaches that God will give us whatever power we need to obey His Word. And ultimately, when he was done, you know, kind of conning himself into thinking that 
he was wanting to really walk this walk, and he did reach a point where he did want to walk this walk, and he's doing it to this day, praise the Lord for that, then, then he is experiencing that power too. It, 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 it doesn't mean that because of God's power in our life that there won't be a battle associated with this Christian walk. But in the battle, we can be confident God is going to give me what I need to be successful here. I love 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The one who is in us is the Lord. The one who is in the world is the devil. And uh, so greater is God who is in us than he, the devil, who is in, in the world. The Lord has all of the supernatural that's necessary to add to our lives to be successful against him as our enemy. Don't forget to hit the devil with a four by four once in a while. First John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. I like it too. Everybody ought to hear that once in a Christian life. And then it gets put into our noggin and, and God can bring it to our remembrance. And so this is the miracle that... Uh, that was done, and, and so the uh, sun uh, stood uh, still, the midst of heaven did not hasten to go down for a whole day. Now, this is one of the greatest miracles, really, in all of the Bible. We think about the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Big miracle. To part the Red Sea and bring two to three million people across it, and then uh, to drown the uh, chariots in the army of, of Pharaoh afterwards. This is a bigger miracle than the crossing of the Jordan River. And the reason it is, is for God to accomplish this particular miracle, He's messing with the whole universe. He's t- he, we're messing with orbits. We're messing with this planet that goes around this one to this one to this one and all this. And I don't really care for studying planets. I, I, I hope... Some of you do. It's a little uh, boring to me. And, uh, but I remember, I, I realize it's really complicated out there and it's really amazing. So for the Lord to take and, and accomplish this miracle is one of the greatest miracles of the Old Testament. Just really, really tremendous. Now how God did that, people have all kinds. You can pick up books and read about it and very, very good people write on it and there's wonderful sermons to be uh, listened to related to it and obviously God didn't stop the orbit of the earth all in one second or, or, or the Indian Ocean was sloshed out of the bathtub or w- whatever might happen but you know what he could have done that too because he can just he's, out ti- he's outside of the time space continuum which I don't even know what that is but it really sounds impressive but he, he's outside of stuff that we don't even know he, he's, we think that well, okay, in order for him to do this, he had to do this and all this and this. And all God did is he just had to rub his earlobe or something. I don't know. And it's all done. It's, not, it's easy for him. So there's a lot of places where you can learn about how maybe this happened and all the deal. Again, for me, life is so easy. Because I, for me, once you believe Revelation, Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible is simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as a creator, he can fiddle with it however he wants. But this is a tremendous miracle that has occurred. But the spiritual lesson is a great one. It's a great physical thing that happened here. But the, the lesson spiritually is it, tremendous for us to have that confidence. God, you will add the supernatural 
to what it is that you've called me to, so I will be successful. And so all of this was written in the book of Jasher. The book of Jasher is mentioned elsewhere one other time in, uh, in the uh, Old Testament. There's also a book that we know very little about called the Book of the Wars of the Lord. It's mentioned. And so these books apparently were uh, very, very valuable historical records of of the nation of Israel, not part of the Bible, not part of inspired scripture, and this book of Jasher, uh, no part of it has survived to this day, but it did exist in, in that day, and all of this was recorded in that book, uh, this, this great event. And then Joshua returned, and all the children of Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and they had hidden themselves in a cave at Machadah. And it was told, Joshua, saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machadah. And so Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. So they're in the middle of chasing down an, an army that they are routing. And, it's, and so they want to, Joshua is a very wise leader. He uh, and he has the ability on the spot, and not all leaders, and certainly not all military leaders, can make good decisions on the spot. And he does. He realizes, okay, we got these kings. They've run into a cave. Let's not mess with the kings. The more important thing is to continue to rout this army. We'll come back and deal with these th kings. So he has a sense of of priorities, how and, and how important that is. It's interesting. I recently read a a book on the Battle of Monte Cassino in uh, World War II. And it, uh, you just, it defies the imagination what the soldiers went through to take Monte Cassino in, in Italy. You just, you can't believe that human beings could be pushed that far and push themselves uh, that far. And it was considered probably the hardest battle in the entirety of, of World War II. The American general who was uh, over the, uh, the battle of allied forces to take and defeat the Germans at what was known as the Gustav Line, a heavily fortified line, considered almost impregnable, you know, you could, and, and all. They, they, um, they finally broke through that and they had the Germans fleeing. The American general, wanting to have the victory ascribed to him uh, in the, in, before the American public, instead of using the army to encircle the German army and utterly defeat it, or certainly take, take it uh, uh, captive, he pulled back and he made a beeline to Rome so that the press could take his picture in Rome as the conqueror of, uh, of, and liberator of Rome. In the meantime, in the days and the weeks that were lost, the, the significant uh, portion of the fleeing German army was able to get out, away from encirclement by Allied forces, and those forces then had to fight them uh, with very bloody battles all the way up the peninsula of, of uh, Italy. And, and so Joshua doesn't have, he's not an egomaniac here. He realizes first things first, and so he's, he's going to, the defeat of the enemy is the most important. We'll come back and take care of the kings. So roll stones, set a guard over them, trap them in the cave, 
And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord had delivered them into your hand. And then it happened when Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered into fortified cities. So it was important to get to them before they got into these fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua and Machadah and peace, and no one moved his tongue against the children of Israel. In other words, once word got out about this victory, none of the enemies of, of, Israel, of Israel were mocking them. There were no uh, children of Israel jokes on television or anything like that. There's great respect uh, developing for these people and for their God. And then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave, bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And so it was that when they brought out those uh, kings to Joshua, that Joshua called for all of the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. They drew near and put their feet on their necks. And so these five kings are put out in front of Joshua, the other generals that made up the army. They're bowed down before them. And so this was an ancient symbol of kind of the complete subjugation of, of their uh, enemies. And then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So this isn't pride on Joshua's part. What he's wanting to do among his leaders is to encourage their faith. That this is not just one victory here. As we obey God, God will show us this kind of favor against any enemy that we fight. So he uses it. He's a teacher. He uses it as a learning experience. And afterward, Joshua struck them, uh, killed the five kings. Having killed them, he then hung them on five trees, and they were hanging on trees until evening. Again, their bodies being hung as an example, a deterrent against fighting against the children of Israel. This is what happens when you do. Uh, and, and so, but according to Jewish law, they were not to hang overnight, and so they were taken down. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. They took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been high, hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day the day of this writing. And on that day, Joshua took uh, Machada and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. And so he, did, uh, all, he also did to the king of Machada as he had done to the king of Jericho. And now from verses 28 through, through 43... Um, is a record of the completion of the southern campaign uh, to conquer Israel. Remember, when they, when they crossed the Jordan River and they, they came in and conquered Jericho, God's uh, means for the conquest of the land was to, to uh, make a military thrust straight into the center of the land and divide it into the north and the south so that these two groups of people could not unite in attack against the children of Israel. So the means was divide and conquer. So what, what we have recorded now 
now is that following these, this great victory, Joshua uses the momentum here to um, go out on a, a series of very quick strikes against other military cities in the south in order to defeat them. And uh, so this is the record. It's a historical book. And so the Bible is a historical book, among other things. And so this is the record of, uh, of seven further king, uh, victories that Joshua won following uh, is a part of the southern campaign. And then Joshua passed from uh, Makedah and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna, and the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it, and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, he let none remain, but did uh, to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it, and the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel and who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword according to all that he had done to Libna. And then Horam king of Gezer came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining from Lachish. Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him and they encamped against it fought against it, and they took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were with it, he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. And so Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword. Its king, all its cities, all the people who were in it, he left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it, and all the people were who were in it. And so he's being completely obedient to God's uh, command. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir and they fought against it and he took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who uh, were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron. So he did to Debir and its king as he had done also to Libna and its king. And so Joshua conquered all the land as, as he just kind of concludes this, uh, the, the whole series of battles to conquer the south. He conquered all of the land, the mountain country, and the south, and the lowland, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, so now having concluded the conquest of the southern section, Joshua turns his attention 
to the north and the, the defeating of the peoples in the north. And that's what we have here, the northern campaign beginning in chapter 11. It came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard all of these things, the victory of Israel, that he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, and the king, uh, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Ashtaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain, south of Chinneroth, in the lowland. Chinneroth is a, is a reference to the Sea of Galilee area. In the lowland and in the heights of Dor to the west. To the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the low mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon uh, in the land of Mizpah. And so out of fear now, these northern uh, kings align together now to fight um, Israel. And so they realize we can't defeat them individually, and five kings couldn't defeat them. And so let's put even more kings together to see if we can uh, defeat them as they come into the north. And so they went out. Uh, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And so, uh, the, uh, speaking about the sand on the seashore, just kind of, uh, you know, poetic imagery for the fact that their army was really uh, gigantic in size. And they also had horses and chariots, which the children of Israel did not have. So, in this battle, these northern kings... Um, in terms of the military or the army that they're going to put on the field against the children of Israel, they are numerically superior. And then in terms of technology and equipment, they are also uh, superior. Israel has the trump card, if you excuse the expression. And that is they have God who is greater than all of these other things. And so they come with this great army. They come with this great equipment. And when all these kings had met together, they came and they camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And again, we have the same thing as they unite together. They leave their different regions and they choose to meet Israel out in an open area. And God is going to, even though it, on the short term, the children of Israel have to fight this gigantic army all at once. On the long term, it's a great blessing because, again, they don't have to go and defeat city after city after city and stronghold after stronghold after stronghold. You ever been in a trial where, like on the short term, it's pretty hard? And you look and say, Lord, what in the world is going on here? I mean, you say it respectfully and all. It's just you're asking for revelation and insight. And it uh, doesn't make any sense. And then by the time the whole thing plays out, we realize that God had set the whole thing up to not only... Uh, gain this little thing that we were thinking that it was all about, but for about four other things to be knocked out all at the same time. You ever notice that God's usually knocking three or four things out all at the same time? I think he's dealing like with one half of something. So this picture's pretty big. And, and so, again, God's grace here, and he's going to work it together for good. But the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of the, because of them, you know, they, and God knew there's a lot to be afraid of here in the natural. Don't be afraid of them for tomorrow about this time. I will deliver up all of them slain before Israel. And at, at the end of the battle, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, that's interesting. God says you're going you're to defeat them. You're going to take their cities. But 
um, and you're going to wipe out their army, but I don't want you to keep the horses and I don't want you to keep the chariots. I want you to hamstring the horses, which means they cut a tendon on the back of the leg of a horse and it renders the, the horse useless for military purposes. And you say, why in the world would God do that? God wanted to inherit all kinds of things. He did not want them to inherit a large number of chariots and a large number of horses because he knew that the tendency on their heart would then be to incorporate that into their military and then in future victories think that they have victories because of their superior weaponry rather than giving God the glory. So God deliberately can keep us uh, pretty simple going into battles, even spiritual battles, uh, because uh, he knows that when we get on the other side of them, we'll know it was all God. So Joshua and all the people of war came with him. They came out uh, against them suddenly. So again, a surprise attack by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them uh, into the hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon to the brook uh, Misrevoth, uh and to the valley of Mizpah eastward they attacked them until they left none of them remaining and so Joshua did to them as the Lord had said to him he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire obedience after the victory Isn't it funny how sometimes God will give us this great, big, unbelievable, only God could do it victory. And then there can be that moment now where now I've got to obey what he told me to do. And our flesh can be so perverse that we'll start to rethink it. And it's important following great victories and demonstration of God's work in our power that we be doubly on guard, doubly diligent to obey his commandments. And Joshua did it, and good for him, being obedient after victory. And Joshua turned back at that time, and he took Hazor, and he struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all of the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. So they defeat the army on the field, and then now they move to destroy the cities. Uh, so they utterly destroyed the people in Hazor. There was none uh, left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. And it's interesting that only Jericho and Ai and Hazor were destroyed in the conquest. But the cities themselves, the physical cities, uh, Jericho, the walls all fell down and they were destroyed that way. And Ai was burned and Hazor was burned. They didn't go through and burn every city as a part of the conquest because the cities were a part of what God was giving to them as the blessing. So remember Josh, uh, Moses spoke to them and he said, when you go into and inherit the land and cities you did not build and orchards you did not plant, this was all intended to be as a part of the spoils that went to the children of Israel, part of the blessings of, of the land. And so they only destroyed uh, three and the rest they, they took and, and ultimately inhabited. And so all the cities of these kings and all their kings Joshua took struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities which stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua 
burned. And all the spoil of these cities, all the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded uh, Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone that the Lord had commanded him. And so total, when we give God complete obedience, we can be confident of total victory in any given situation. And thus Joshua took all the land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land. And so here's a review of, of the, the southern and, and mostly the northern uh, campaign. And so they took all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands from Mount uh, Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. That's a wonderful statement. I like that uh, passage or this verse right in the middle of all of the battles and all the fighting that's uh, going on and sometimes we read the book of Joshua we read any book in the Bible and we don't have a sense of how much time is going by as a part of all these battles there's a period from the time that they entered into the promised land until chapter 11 verse 18 where they reach this moment in the conquest somewhere between five and seven years have gone by They've been at this a long time. The wives and the children's of, uh, of, uh, children of the two and a half tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, waiting back in what is today Jordan, waiting for their husbands and their sons to come back to them. I mean, it was a long time that they were in, involved in uh, all of this. And so uh, it took a long time to conquer the land and to uh, defeat the enemy and all of this. And, and the beautiful New Testament kind of application for us is that it takes uh, time for maturity to occur in the Christian life. It takes time to possess the promises of God. There are hundreds and hundreds of promises in the New Testament for us as Christians. We're not going to knock those out in 48 hours. and say, God, okay, what do we do next? It's going to take a lifetime for us to possess those promises because we don't just possess them as we, we learn them and we read them and, and then, okay, all of a sudden they're ours. There's an opposition in this. There's a spiritual warfare. There's an enemy that fights against us, wants to use our flesh and the world and the devil against us in, in, in appropriating these promises into our lives. And so all of these things, they take time. And we have to stay patient in this there should always be growth in our lives as christians we should always be moving forward but sometimes for those of us who are more type a kinds of people we have to realize that this is going to take a little bit of time too and that it's not going to happen uh, overnight and uh, i think about the apostle paul what a great encouragement he is in 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 this vein when he wrote the letter his epistle to the church at Philippi, he'd been saved for 30 years. He'd been in public ministry for 25 years. I don't, the, the, nobody has been influential for the things of, of, of Christ in the way the Apostle Paul has was in all of history. And yet, 30 years after being saved, 
25 years after active ministry, this is what he said in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. There are still more promises to possess. But I press on growth that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He wants to make that clear to us. We read the Bible and we just think that Paul was just about what they put, what kind of dust did God put on him? I mean, he never made a mistake or never, you know. And, and Paul is saying, listen, I want you to, to realize I have not, I don't count myself to have come to full maturity. I haven't not yet apprehended. But one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. I think that the two things that we have to give God in our lives as Christians for growth in, in Christian maturity. We've got to give them our obedience and we've got to give them time. Those two things. If we give them our obedience and we give them time, it's always going to be victory. No matter what promise we're trying to possess, no matter what obstacle we're facing in life, whatever it is, there will always be victory if we give them those two things. I don't know about you, but well, let me give you an illustration. Here's another counseling session. Don't ever counsel with me. But this one's about a hundred. This one's about a hundred years old too. I never really use counseling sessions as a uh, as an illustration, except when they're ancient and it's impossible for anyone to identify the person. If I slip out with a name, oh boy, wouldn't that be embarrassing now? But um, but because I think it's dangerous. Sometimes a pastor will say, you know, I was counseling a woman this week, and she said, well, she's sitting right in the room. Probably eight other people in the room know and, uh, that she shared with what happened in the, in the appointment, and about, probably about 60 people knew she was coming in to see you, but she never told them what it was about. Now you're telling the whole co- Not that smart, okay? So, so it's best to be careful there. But one time I had a woman come to me, again a million years ago, She's not in the church, so don't worry about that. You'll never identify her. And she came to me, and she was a brand new Christian. And she was in what, what a difficult place she was in in life. Her husband had just unexpectedly to her, had just left her, abandoned her. And so she's in the middle of all of this. She's now trying to raise her children on the immediate, on her own, her oldest daughter, teenage daughter, has just decided to use this as an opportunity to rebel mightily in, in horrible ways against the mother who's still trying to grapple with all of these other things that are, are going on. She comes to talk to me and she's got all this stuff going on. It's happening. And she says, it's affecting my health and, and I'm coughing up blood at night and all these things. And so I'm listening to what she's having to say. And it's heartbreaking and, and all. And then she said to me, and it was so interesting, she said to me, and I'm, I'm trying my best to stop smoking. Now in her mind, the most important thing to God it, upon her becoming a Christian was that she would stop smoking. 
I don't know what background she came from or whatever. But that's the biggest thing. So she's putting all this pressure on herself on top of all these other things. So I said to her, this great counsel, really, I'm the hero of my story again on this. But I just, I just mentioned it because it happened to turn out okay. Some of you know that it's, that's not always the case. But I said to her, just relax on the smoking thing. This is about what I said. I don't remember the conversation verbatim. I said, just relax on it. Don't worry about the smoking. I said, just concentrate on what's in front of you, growing as a Christian, these kinds of things. And I told her, I said, you know, when we come to know the Lord, I said, we've all got, you know, let's say we all come to, when we come to know the Lord, the Lord looks at us and he sees 100 major things that he knows he's going to change in our life before we go to heaven. We know everything changes then. But he's going to change this side of heaven. And, and, I, and I said, you, you shouldn't assume that smoking is number one or two on that list. I think he'll get to smoking just on the basis of stewardship of your body. But you know, that may, be num- that may not even be in the top ten or the top twenty for God because your needs are so great in other areas. Throw that on God. Let Him deal with the smoking in, in His own time. She came back several weeks later. and I mean, her whole countenance had changed. And it didn't have anything to do with me, trust me. Her whole countenance had changed and she wasn't coughing up blood anymore. Her health was better. Things were coming in line. And she said, and by the way, the Lord took the smoking away too on, on things. But the Lord had had the time to take care of this thing and this thing and this thing. And I think he probably knocked the smoking out just to encourage your faith at that, that point in time. But that's the way that it is with all of our lives. So I've walked with the Lord since 1980. Say I have a list. So let's say I have a list of 200, all right? You have 100, I have 200. I don't know where he is on that list. But I know he'll be working on that list until the day that I go to be with him. But I know the two, I want to give him the two things that he asks of me so he can keep moving through that list. So little by little, each, each day and each week, I can maybe become a little bit more like Christ in this life. I want to give him my obedience and I want to give him the time that he needs to knock these things out in my life. And he will get to all of these things and he will knock them out. But sometimes we want to kind of help God out with our priorities don't do it. He knows how to get our attention and say, Damien, this is what I'm working on right now. Can we vote on that? I like door number two. I'd like to work on this thing over here. It doesn't work that way. So we give him our obedience. We give him the time that he needs. He'll get to the whole list. He'll bring glory to himself. But it, it, it takes time. And there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. He gave them 400 years to repent and and to turn from their sin. And when they didn't, God feels free with that kind of resistance and rebellion to then come in and confirm a person's heart in their rebellion and then to judge them. That's why it's important not to disregard the call of, of God to repentance uh, in, in our lives. Or in, I'm talking about the unsaved now in, in terms of 
turn from their wickedness, come to me, because there can become a point in time where God will, like with Pharaoh, confirm us in, in our uh, poor decision-making. And at that time, Joshua came, cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them and all their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. You remember the Anakim when the twelve spies came back at the failure of faith at Kadesh Barnea? We can't go in there. There's giants in the land. And they talked about the descendants of Anak, these great giants. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We could never defeat them in all of this. All they needed to do was go into the land, give God their obedience, give God the time that he wanted, and the Anakim were going, to, were going to, to, to fall. So it doesn't matter what kind of giants are in our, our lives in terms of sin or how fearsome these things are, the strongholds, or we could never defeat them. As long as we obey God, give them time, then these, all of these enemies are going to be defeated or will, in, in our lives. They're already defeated, but we'll begin to walk in that, that victory. And so the Anakim, it was nothing it, 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 as soon as... God got Israel's uh, obedience. And so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. So the overall conquest of the land uh, occurs here at the end of, of verse 23. But there's a lot of pockets of resistance still in the land, and so God's going to address that a different way than this one large army of Israel making its way through the land. We'll take a look at that, Lord willing, next week. The worship team would come forward. We've covered a lot of ground tonight, and uh, 